The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him, God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion, and the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 62 starts off with the psalmist making this confident declaration about his faith in the Lord. Read it with me. Verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Boom. Right there. Confident declaration of faith in God. But what makes this confident declaration of faith surprising is his circumstances. The situation that he's in. That he's saying this in his moment. Well, what's his situation? He tells us. Verses 3 and 4. Read with me. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Okay, so the psalmist does something here that you and I do a lot. Uh, He has an imaginary conversation with his enemies just fewer four-letter words. Um, And and through this, we see that um, because of his enemies, the psalmist is in a life-threatening crisis. Um, He's he's in a bad place. Uh, So you might be asking, who are these enemies? What's going on? Well, we don't know much, but we do know that these enemies fight not with uh, brute strength, but with deceit, through betrayal, 
Um, they pretend to honor him. Maybe they flatter him face to face. And then the moment when they think it's safe, the moment they think he's not looking, they set to bring him down. All right. Um, and their constant pursuit of his downfall has led him totally to his end. He's, he's, he's done. Um, he says, you know what? I, I'm like an unstable wall or, or, or fence, like, like an old fence that if there is just a small wind, if there's the slightest push, I'm going to completely collapse. Um, he's weak. He's at his end. He's, he's been betrayal. He's been betrayed. Um, betrayal is such a deep, deep hurt, right? I mean, the enemy that the psalmist is facing here is that type of character in the movie that you think is good until the very end. And then at that point, you turn to your friend and you, you go, oh, see, I knew he was bad. I told you at the beginning. Do you remember I, I said he was bad? And you said, no, and I was right. right? It's that type of enemy. He is, he, he's done he, he's hurt. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're in that place. Does, does that resonate with you? Um, do you feel like a wall that if someone were to give the slightest push would just completely collapse? Maybe you don't even know that you are and maybe as you've come into this place and you've stopped moving and going and going and going and you've had a moment to sit and to pause and to reflect, maybe you realize, I am in that place. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I just want to tell you that you're in good company. Um, because as we look in the scriptures, we see saints uh, heroes of the faith who profess that this is where they're at at times. In fact, it is a normal place to be in our Christian life. So we see where the psalmist is. We see his, his place where he's at, right? Um, now as we move in the psalm, I don't know what you're expecting to come next. What do you expect to come next after the psalmist expresses where he's at at his sin? Well, for me, I kind of expect a lament to come next. Um, a lament, this, this period where he expresses his grief and his sorrow, where he brings it all before the Lord, where there's a, a complaint. He's done that a little bit, but it's very brief. I expect more of that right? Uh, like Psalm 6, the psalmist says, I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I, I drench my couch with my weeping. Or maybe Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? I've said this before, 
so I may sound like a bit of a broken record, but, you know, records are making a comeback. So let me just restate it. Um, If we divide the Psalter up by genre, there are more psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. Does that blow your mind? Because it kind of blows my mind. Um, And I think that it has to have a shaping effect on not only how we view our worship and prayer, right? Not as always happy clappy, everything's okay, I love Jesus, right? Um, Not only that, but also just how we view our Christian life and the rhythms of our life. Um, So lament is so important to our worship, to our Christian life, being honest with ourselves, being honest with with God and not hiding it. Um, We talk about that a lot at Shades. But what's interesting with this psalm, what's interesting with this specific psalm is that we don't see a long lament. Uh, Verse 5, immediately after he's described his horrific situation, he says what? In verse 5, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from him. As his enemies are closing in, as he feels weak, like a fence that's about to fall over. What's he say before he describes his experience? Verse 1, we already read it. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. This confident declaration of faith. What's going on? Um, when he says that his soul waits in silence, what does he mean by that? My soul waits in silence. What does he mean by that? Um, well, I don't think that the point is simply passivity in the midst of troubles. I don't think the point is simply uh, being silent in the midst of troubles per se. Um, although... Uh, silence and stillness are disciplines and practices that I think as a church we desperately need to recover. I do. And I'm trying to implement that in my own life. And it's extremely challenging. It's very countercultural, right? Um, But I don't think the point is simply passivity or silence per se. Rather, I think waiting in silence communicate that the psalmist is solely placing his trust in God. His confidence is in God alone to deliver him. From him comes my salvation. It's this, it's this complete trust. Um, it, it's like, uh, do you remember when the Israelites were, were pinned up against the sea? And Pharaoh and his chariots are, are closing in. And it's an insane scenario here um, because every man, woman, and child is about to be slaughtered. They're backed up against the water. Do you remember what Moses says? He says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You need only be still. The Israelites were not told to fight. 
but to allow God to fight for them, their waiting was a sign in their complete and total trust for God to deliver them. Because if God does not deliver them, then they're dead. They're, they're done. And so here, the waiting, do you see? In the stillness, in the silence, all of that is supposed to point us to the faith that the psalmist has in God. This soul trust that he has in God to um, deliver him. Uh, it reminds me of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he's reflecting on the season of Advent. And he says that the season of Advent, it's like being in a prison, which is a really warm analogy for the Christmas season, right? Um, he says Advent is like being in a prison and that the only way that we can be delivered is if the door is open from the outside. The psalmist knows this. And he's trusting in Yahweh. That's his response to his circumstances. Okay, let's do a little check-in. I don't know what that brings up for you when I say this. Let me, let me tell you what happens to me. Um, as I'm describing the psalmist's faith, as I'm reading about it, as I'm meditating on it, I immediately think, I don't have any faith. That's not me. I, I, Lord, I want to have a faith like that, but, but that's not me. I don't, I don't have a confident faith. That's not what my faith looks like. I've, if I'm honest, I've never had a faith like that. I don't know if I ever will have a faith like that. I, I start spiraling in a cycle of shame and self-pity and, and doubt. Um, and it <laughs> takes me to a place of feeling hopeless, right? Um, now, this is a tragic irony that I do this, and maybe you can identify with it. This is a tragic irony because you know what this psalm is? This psalm is a psalm of confidence. This psalm is supposed to be a psalm that you and I come to when we're in bad circumstances, right? 2020, 2021, right? Um, we thought that in the new year that it was just going to be a clean slate and on into 2021 with all of its goodness. No, 2021 was like, hey, 2020, hold my beer, right? Um, in, the midst of, in the midst of our dire circumstances, Psalm 62 is supposed to be a psalm that we come to and it's supposed to give us faith, it's supposed to stir our hearts and our affections for Jesus. Um, this is fascinating to me, and maybe you can just think about it. The Psalms are simultaneously the words of God's people to God and the word of God to God's people. Did you see that? The Psalms are simultaneously the words of God's people to God and the word of God to God's people. Um, and so for us, we are to identify with the psalmist, but then also receive God's word for us from the psalmist. And the word that God wants to bring to us is a word of confident faith. He knows how feeble we are. He knows that when we get in circumstances that, 
that shake us up, how often it shakes our faith, and he wants to stir our affections for him. He wants to stir in our hearts faith. That's what he wants for us. That's what he desires for you this morning. And so, with the time that I have left, I simply want us to meditate on three ways that this psalm seeks to stir our faith. So in the midst of everything that's happening, right, in our families, in this church, in our country, in the world, right, we can be a people who trust in the Lord, right? So first, three things. I'm going to kind of jump around the psalm, so forgive me. I'm not just going to walk through it. But first, this psalm um, stirs our hearts to faith by getting us to see the futility of trusting in the things of this world. This psalm wants to, even this morning, stir our faith in Jesus by getting us to see the futility of trusting in the things of this world. Um, Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. He says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. Man, what a sentence. In the balances they go up and they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in exhortation. Set no vain hopes on robbery. Excuse me, not exhortation. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Right. Um, here, the, the psalmist starts by saying that human life is like a breath. It's like, it's like a puff of wind that's just here and then it's immediately gone. Right? Um, therefore, uh, those who flaunt wealth and empower or are a delusion because in all of their arrogance, with all of their wealth, with all of their power, and with all of their influence, what they're painting is a deceptive picture. Because all of their wealth, in all of their power, in all of their influence, right, no matter how grand it is, you know what it is? It's a puff of wind. It's a vapor that's here and then it's gone. Um, we're, we're coming up on the season of Lent. We begin the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday, right? And you know what Ash Wednesday is? Ash Wednesday is super weird. Um, any service where I look a child in the face and I say, from dust you came and from dust you shall return. So repent and believe the gospel because you're going to die. Anytime I do that in a service, for me, that qualifies as weird. And then rubbing ash on someone's forehead just adds to that, right? Yeah, it's a weird service. Um, If you were coming from the outside, you would be like, what is happening right now, right? But it's beautiful. It's beautiful because it causes us to pause and to meditate on our mortality. That we are a puff of wind. Um, And as we do so, um, money looks so big and so important, doesn't it? Political power 
looks so big and so important, doesn't it? Yeah. Influence in what people think about you and what your mark will be that you leave, it, it feels so big and so important, right? But when we stop and we consider our mortality, all of those things look so small. And you know it looks so big and so powerful and so in control? Jesus. Jesus does. So, you know, here's a small group idea. Maybe get together over brunch, get some avocado toast, and reflect on your death. Talk about it. Talk about your experiences with death. Have you ever been with someone that's dying? Have you ever had to sit through that? Is there someone that's close to you that you sat beside, that you walked with, and now you've mourned? Get together and talk about that. And then talk about Jesus. And look at what happens to your faith. You will see how big Jesus is. And your affections will just begin to grow. That's number one. Number two. Um, the psalmist stirs our hearts to faith, faith by showing us the character of confident faith. The psalmist stirs our hearts to faith by showing us the character of confident faith. Or, to put it another way, um, the psalmist wants to show us what confident faith looks like. And I think this is important. The psalmist wants to show us what confident faith looks like. Um, I, I, I don't know what comes up for you when I say John Calvin, uh, but John Calvin uh, made a comment about the Psalms that I think is just dead on. I think he's right here. Um, and that is that uh, he said the Psalms are like a mirror to our soul. The Psalms are like a mirror to our soul. And so you and I, we, we go to the Psalms, we open up, we read them, and we go, oh my gosh, that puts words to my experience. That helps me be able to describe what's, what's going on. That, that gives me words to articulate what I'm feeling, what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking. Um, and Calvin says that when we come to the Psalms, we see um, the full gambit of our emotions. We see, we see all our emotions that we would have. Um, and we see how to bring them before God. Now, I think this is so important because so often, and I, I see it in counseling meetings, I see it in, in myself. We don't say it like this, but this is what's going on. Um, so often, we have this misperception about what strong faith looks like. And the misperception is that a strong faith is this kind of emotionless faith. Uh, this kind of robotic faith. Uh, sometimes we think that a strong faith means an emotionless faith. A faith that doesn't feel anything or process anything or struggle with anything or question anything. It's kind of a faith that's on autopilot. Just flying through all the storms, kind of detached and cool. It's a faith that knows all the right facts about God, and then it's a faith that performs for God. Right? 
Now we know that's not biblical faith. That's not a robust biblical faith. Let me put it this way. Jesus was not an emotionless, independent robot. And you aren't either. You aren't either. What's the psalmist uh, in this psalm say we're supposed to do? He says we're supposed to pour out our hearts before God. Um, a biblical faith, and can I say it this way? A strong biblical faith is a biblical faith that gets angry, that has a righteous anger. A strong biblical faith is a faith that mourns. A strong biblical faith is a faith that struggles. A strong biblical faith is a faith that's not one of denial. A strong biblical faith is one that laments. You can have a strong faith and feel like you're a fence that's about to fall over. You see that? You can have a strong faith and feel like you're a fence that's about to fall over. And when you and I remain silent, and when you and I remain in denial, because we have this picture of what we think a strong faith is, um, when we remain in what I'm calling people-pleaser mode or performance mode, our faith shrivels before the Lord. Because we're what? We're hiding. We're hiding. But when we are able to bring that before the Lord, when we are able to pour all of that out in honesty and vulnerability, our faith grows because we see who God is. And he is a God who sees all, who sees the darkest parts of your life. He sees it and he loves you. And he does not grow weary. He does not grow tired with you coming again and again and again. He waits with a smile on his face and with arms wide open. That's who Jesus is for you. And as we do that, our faith grows because we're, we're really seeing who God is. We're really seeing who God is. Which leads me to my last point for today. My last point. And that is, the psalm stirs our hearts to faith by getting us to focus on the object of our faith. This psalm stirs our hearts to faith by getting us to focus on the object of our faith. Um, I think it's important to say, after all this talk of faith, that the emphasis in this psalm is not the intensity of the psalmist's faith, it's on the object of the psalmist's faith. Um, throughout the psalm, we don't get a lot about his situation, um, but he says a lot about God. <laughs> It's, it's one figurative description after the next about who God is. That's why he's confident. It has nothing to do with him. It's all in who God is. Um, look at the object. Look at who God is. That's where he's directing us. That's where he's pointing us. And who is God to the psalmist? Verse 6, he declares God is his rock. God is the one that provides him with strength. Um, it's almost like he's saying that he's built his life on, on a solid rock. Sound familiar? His faith will not be shaken because 
The rock that his faith is built upon is stronger than any storm. Um, when we sing as a body, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand, all other ground is sinking sand, something is happening in this room. Something is happening in this room. In verse 6, he declares God is his salvation or his deliverance. Um, God is the God who saves. That's just who he is. And in Jesus Christ, you and I don't just get a ticket to heaven and don't just get pardoned from sin, but we enter into a vital personal union with the triune God in the Son through the Holy Spirit forever. The eternal love that God has within himself is poured out upon us now and forever. We have salvation. We have rescue from all of our enemies. And so when we sing, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. When we sing that, something is happening in this room. In verse 7, he declares God is a fortress. Um, God is an inaccessible high tower that provides safety and refuge from any enemy. It's the place that he runs to when he's in trouble. He has protection. He's in a safe place no matter what. When we sing, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us with the fire and the flood, faithful forever, perfect in love, you're sovereign over us. When we sing that, something happens in this room. What is happening in this room? Faith is growing. Faith is being stirred up within us. And you know what I see happen as I sit at the drum set? I see confidence among this body. And I don't think that it can be discounted as emotional manipulation. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that you and I, together as a body and individually, are fixing with everything that we have within us on who God is. We are singing, we are shouting, we are singing off tune, but we're singing with all that we have. God, this is who you are and this is who I am because of you. And guess what's happening? Our faith is growing and we are confident. And guess what? It has nothing to do with you and I. It has everything to do with what God is doing in this moment, in this room, as we simply set our affections and our mind on who God is. That's what's happening. And so as we go into the world, we have to, in whatever way we can in this season, be a people that say, I'm going to set my mind on who God is. I'm going to set my mind on the object of my faith. Okay? This is something that I've been asking myself, and I want to ask you, but I want you to first know that I've been asking myself this question. How much news media are you consuming on a daily basis? How much news media are you consuming on a daily basis? Lord, if this is not from you, then let it fall on deaf ears. Over the past 
year, two years, I have felt this weight. And the weight is that our social media platforms in our 24-7 news cycle is discipling Christians more than the churches. And the reason I feel that is because of the amount of time, and I'm talking to myself here, okay? (laughs) Is the amount of time that we spend on them and we spend in front of them. We, many of us, as statistics are showing, are spending four to eight hours a day on these platforms. I don't care who you are. That's going to have a massive shaping effect on how you view the world, okay? I'm not trying to come down in judgment here. I'm not trying to come down in shame. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in, in political, um, the political world. I'm not saying we shouldn't get news and, and know what's going on. But those statistics scare the hell out of me. And I'm seeing its effects. Shades, no matter what news outlet we look at, no matter how long we spend on our screens, can we be a people that, that, set, that say together, first and foremost, we will set our minds on who God is? Can we do that together? Amen? Amen. Can we do it together? I need you to help me, right? We need one another in this. Okay, that was off script. I wasn't planning on doing that. All right, let me just close with this. Let me just close with this. Um, look at verse 11 and 12 with me. This is how the psalm ends and so will wrap everything up. Um, verse 11. Once God has spoken twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man according to his work. To God belongs power and steadfast love. That's what's going on in these verses. To God belongs power and steadfast love. I want us to think about those two things together. Power and steadfast love. Um, Recently, in, in movies and in uh, reading books, uh, they, there will be these random moments where I just start tearing up. And I'm not going to tell you the movies or the books because it's, it's like really ridiculous, right? I mean, I'm just way too embarrassed to admit. And so I've kind of been reflecting on like, why as I'm watching Twilight am I tearing up? No, that's not what's happening. Um, but why in, these, why in these random moments am I, am I just getting overwhelmed with emotion? Um, and I think I've figured out part of it. Um, part of it is this emotion wells up in me anytime I see the most power, powerful character, the most powerful character in the story use their power to to save and to rescue and to deliver someone who is vulnerable, someone who is helpless, someone who otherwise would be completely trapped 
Um, this person who's helpless and vulnerable is overwhelmed by an enemy. And as you're reading the story, as you're watching the movie, you're seeing it. You're like, this person's screwed. They're hopeless. In many situations, they're going to die. And then, all of a sudden, comes in a powerful force that just completely wipes out whatever foe they were facing like that. Comes to the one who's vulnerable and in need, and you can see the love and the affection that that powerful figure has for the vulnerable one. May we be reminded that God is more powerful than we could ever fathom. So often as we get older, I feel like our experiences can teach us otherwise. And we don't believe it. God is more powerful than we can ever fathom. But unlike the enemies that the psalmist faces, God never uses his power abusively. God never uses his power for his, his own ends. With all the things that we're dividing on, I feel like as a country we can agree on this. We desire leaders who use their power and their authority for the good of those they serve, right? I mean, I don't care who you are. That's what you want. You want a figure who is powerful but uses their power. They empty their power for the good to protect, to serve, to build up those that they're called to serve, right? You know what Paul says in Romans Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He tells the Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the what? It's the power of God. God exercises his power by coming in weakness and dying a criminal's death so that we can be delivered from all of our enemies. Why would he do such a thing? Because he's a God of steadfast love. This is what we have to wrap our minds around. The God who created the entire universe, the God that is totally outside of our mind and our understanding, the God who is more powerful than we can ever imagine, has directed that power, has channeled that power in a certain direction. And do you know what that direction is? Your salvation, your deliverance, your protection. Your future, all of that power is channeled towards you. Why would he do such a thing? Because he loves you. We just got through the book of Revelation. When John sees Jesus, he falls on his feet as though he's dead, right? Because of the greatness what he's witnessing. But then what does Jesus say? Fear not, because the most powerful force on the planet is for us shades Jesus Christ is more powerful than COVID. Jesus Christ is more powerful than political divisiveness. Jesus Christ is more powerful than this country. Jesus Christ is more powerful than your sin. He is more powerful than all of it. And I know that that power has been poured out to you by the Holy Spirit and that that power will see us through this current moment as a church and into eternity where we will be with him 
forever. For he is powerful and he is a God of faithful love. The last word in a sermon on faith must be that when we are faithless, he is faithful. That is who God is. And it is in his faithfulness that I have confidence. It is not in myself. It is not in what I see around me. It is only in him. And he is Jesus Christ, the God who conquered the cross, who rose from the dead, and who is taking his people into eternity with him forever. Amen.